Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, on this episode of Dear World Love History, we're going to be taking a look at the second part in our Titanic series, starting with the arrival in Cherbourg. Now, while you don't need to listen to the first episode to understand what's happening next in the Titanic journey, we really recommend you do. But if you really don't want to, here's the Cliff Notes version. The Titanic was built in Belfast. She left Belfast. She arrived in Southampton. She picked up stuff. She picked up passengers. She went to Cherbourg. Done. All right, now we can start with episode two. So let's set the scene. The Titanic has left Southampton behind and is now steaming her way across the English Channel toward Cherbourg. Now, the journey took a total of four hours, and she arrived on April 10th at 6.30 p.m. and then dropped anchor. So the Cherbourg had small docks. Big ship, small docks. You could see how that could be an issue. So to solve this, Harland and Wolfe built two tiny steamships for White Star. There was the Nomadic, which ferried the first and second class passengers to the Titanic, and there was the Traffic, which ferried the third class passengers to the Titanic. So these passengers have been sitting in these tiny steamships since 5 p.m., and this is because the Titanic was running late due to the near miss in Southampton with the New York. Some of the most famous passengers would end up boarding in Cherbourg, passengers like the Astors of New York, that's John Jacob Astor and his brand new wife, Madeline Astor, and Margaret Tobin Brown, who in later years would actually come to be known as the unsinkable Molly Brown. And some quick numbers. So of the 274 passengers that boarded the Titanic at Cherbourg, 142 were first class, 30 were second class, and 102 were third class. Now, for some of these passengers, this was the end of a vacation, and for others, it was the beginning. However, for a number of passengers, this was just one leg in a very long journey. For instance, there was a passenger in third class by the name of, and please excuse my pronunciation, Vasilios Katavellas, who started his journey in Greece and had to find his way across Europe all the way to Cherbourg. And even when he landed in New York, he would still need to travel to Milwaukee. To give you an idea of the price discrepancy between first and third class, young Vasilio spent just over seven pounds on his third class ticket, whereas another wealthy first class passenger spent 512 pounds on her ticket, and then her own son spent another 512 pounds for his ticket. Now, on his journey, Vasilios was actually traveling with a fellow friend from Greece, and they actually met two new Greek friends. They made their way to Cherbourg and onto the ship. Unfortunately, all four Greek passengers would not survive the sinking. It took about an hour and a half for the passengers to board the Titanic and to load their luggage as well. And around 8.10 p.m. that night, the Titanic set sail for Queenstown in southern Ireland. Now the Titanic is steaming towards the southern coast of Ireland, and there are multiple things happening at this time. So at night, you know, the first-class passengers are eating their dinner, everybody goes to bed eventually, sun comes up the next morning, as it does every day, in most places anyway. So the next morning, there was an emergency drill that took place below decks. It was 
part of the regulations, uh, nothing out of the ordinary. They had to ring the alarm bells and the watertight doors were closed uh, just to test everything out, make sure it was working okay. Now, around 10.30 in the morning, Captain Smith also had his routine. He would be up and about and he would go on a tour, inspect you know, all the different parts of the ship, make sure everything is up to snuff. And once he was done with the tour, Captain Smith would make his way back to the bridge where he would gather his officers together to go over any issues he might have come across during his tour, and then he would start going over his charts and dealing with any messages that were sent to the Titanic. Around 11 o'clock the morning of April 11th, the Titanic had dropped its anchor off the coast of Queenstown. Now, the town had originally been known as Cove. However, in 1849, in honor of a visit from Queen Victoria, it was renamed to Queenstown. In 1922, Ireland was finally once again an independent nation. Now, as a result, they changed the name of the town back to Cove. That's how you pronounce it. C-O-V is in Victor, E is in Edward. However, that's not how you spell it. It is actually spelled C-O-B is in boy, H, Cove. While the Titanic was waiting for the passengers to be ferried over, traders set up on the promenade deck to sell their wares. Now, Just like in Cherbourg, there were two ships that were designated to ferry the passengers over. So the Ireland was responsible for the 10 first and second class passengers, as well as the nearly 1,400 sacks of mail that, remember, RMS Titanic, Royal Mail Steamer, was going to carry to New York. And then there was the America, which followed shortly after, and they were responsible for the 113 third class passengers most of which were Irish emigrants. One of those young Irish emigrants was a 21-year-old man by the name of Daniel Buckley. He was boarding the Titanic with six of his friends, all of them on the way to Chicago. Now, we will actually meet up with Daniel Buckley later on in the story of the Titanic. There were eight people who disembarked at Queenstown, one of which was a fireman who may have just used the Titanic as a way to get home back to Ireland. And another was a passenger by the name of Frank Brown, who took a majority of the photos of the Titanic that we have today. So in 1986, about 25 years after his death, 40,000 never-before-seen negatives were discovered in a metal trunk. The passengers aborted. All of the luggage is on. The mail has been loaded onto the ship. The Titanic is ready to set off on its journey. Remember, it's April 11th. So at 1.30 p.m., the Titanic was ready to go. She then raised her anchor for the last and final time. When the Titanic set sail out onto the Atlantic, she had 2,235 people on board, including the crew. And as the ship was leaving Ireland behind, a third-class passenger by the name of Eugene Daly pulled out his Yulian pipes, which were the Irish bagpipes, and played Aaron's Lament, Aaron being the Irish name for Ireland. It was a goodbye to a homeland that he would never see again. And now we're going to take a few minutes to talk a bit about the three classes. So the rich in the first class really enjoyed to gamble, so much so that it was discouraged and notices were posted to warn the first-class passengers of card sharps on board, two of which were Harry Kid Homer and George Raritan, who was also known as Boy Bradley. All right, so since we've talked about first class quite a bit in the first episode, we're actually going to move on to second class and third class before coming back around to the three classes and talking about what they enjoyed doing on the ship. 
Now, second-class passengers included uh, people who were members of the clergy, teachers, those who ran and managed hotels, um, you know, storefront owners, etc., etc. In a lot of ways, second-class was similar to first-class in its comforts. However, while the engines could be heard in the second-class cabins, they did have a lot of natural sunlight during the day. So those who might have been tempted to travel in first class opted to uh, downgrade their ticket, pay less, and travel in second class instead because the amenities were just so good. And now we're going to talk a little bit about the second class passengers. So the only Japanese passenger on board was a man by the name of Masabumi Hasono. Joseph LaRoche, a man from Haiti, was traveling with his pregnant wife and two daughters, and he also happened to be the only black man on board. His wife was Juliette Lafargue, a woman he had met and married in France in 1908. On board was also Lawrence Beasley. He was a science teacher from England, and his first-hand account of the sinking can be found on Amazon. Now, fun fact about his son... His son married a wonderful woman named Dottie Smith, and for those of you who do not know who she is, she is the author of 101 Dalmatians. Father Thomas Biles, who was not supposed to be on the Titanic, but was transferred as a result of that coal strike we mentioned in episode one, was headed to New York to perform the marriage ceremony for his brother. He was raised Anglican, but actually converted to Catholicism when he went to join the Anglican ministry. Now, like many others on the Titanic... Father Thomas Biles did not make it to New York. And then there was Annie Clemmer Funk. She was the first female Mennonite missionary to be sent to India, where she spent five years. She was returning home to Pennsylvania after receiving notice that her mother was sick. She was originally supposed to be on another ship, but like Father Thomas Biles, was transferred to the Titanic, and she perished during the sinking. Leopold Weitz, a Jewish man who had moved from Budapest to England before moving on to Montreal in 1911, had returned to Europe to bring his wife to Montreal, where he had made a new home for them. Now, unfortunately, Leopold did not survive the sinking of the ship. However, his body was recovered with thousands of dollars hidden in his clothing. The money was returned to his widow. Michel Navratil was from southern Slovakia. Now, while he was in the middle of a divorce, he kidnapped his two sons, Michel and Edmund, and purchased tickets for the Titanic under a different name. Now, while they were traveling on the Titanic, he referred to his sons as Lolo and Momo. There were seven men traveling from Fritham in Hampshire, and unfortunately, all seven men went down with the ship. The largest group represented in the second class was the Cornish. Now, there are two reasons we are mentioning Cornwall. The first is because of a Cornish man named Henry Trengrouse, who, a hundred years before the Titanic, devoted his life to the idea of the first distress rocket. Now, the second reason is because of Poldu, which is located in southern Cornwall. It is the location for the Marconi wireless station, which received the first message sent across the Atlantic in December of 1901. Now we're going to move on and talk about the third-class passengers and accommodations. Now, since White Star was more focused on passenger comfort as opposed to speed, the passengers of third class won the jackpot on the Titanic. Okay, their cabins were far more comfortable than on any other ship outside of the Olympic-class liners. So their cabins were usually meant for anywhere between two to four people, whereas on other ships, passengers might be packed into a room. 
Even though their rooms were small and didn't have the same amenities and luxuries as first and second class, they were still lit by electricity and did have their own washing station. Knowing the times, single men and women were housed on opposite ends of the ship, and families were housed near the single women. Now, knowing that families might need a larger room, they were placed in rooms that could accommodate anywhere between 6 to 10 people. All right, so let's get dirty for a second. So back before the passengers were split into three classes, those in steerage were not allowed to bathe themselves below deck. And if they wanted to go to the bathroom, they had to go up on deck where everyone can see them and what they're doing. That's not awkward at all. You're right. That's not awkward. That's downright uncomfortable and mortifying. Absolutely. So... On the Titanic, there was no need for those in third class to remain filthy. The Titanic had two baths. Now, while there were over 700 passengers that had to share these baths, sharing a bath is better than no bath at all. Like first and second class passengers, the third class passengers could also enjoy some amenities on the ship, which included a smoking room and a bar, which the men appreciated. There was also a general room where the ladies could... Um, hang out. A lot of the passengers could actually hang out in the general room. It was where dancing could take place and singing on previous liners uh, before, you know, the ships were more concerned with three classes and their comfort. The general room was kind of like the room of requirement for third class passengers. It was the singing room and the dancing room and the smoking room and the drinking room and the eating room and the ladies room and all the other kind of rooms that you could possibly have on a ship for third class passengers. As for the passengers in third class, they included farmers and blacksmiths and seamstresses and locksmiths and boxers and many, many, many more. And for many of these passengers, they didn't really know what a day off was. They were constantly working and they had a one week long journey to New York to sit back and just... They had someone else cooking for them, very delicious, good food, mind you, and they didn't have to lift a finger, which was new to them and something they really could enjoy. So let's get to meet some of these passengers. Now, unfortunately, unlike first class and unlike second class, a lot of the people you're going to meet in the next few minutes will not have made it off the ship. So first up is Carl Asplund, who had divided his time between Sweden and his home in Massachusetts. Now, he had gone back to Europe for his wife and children. They were all making their way back to Massachusetts. It was his wife, Selma, and five of their children. There was Philip, who was 13 years old. There was nine-year-old Gustav, the twins, Carl and Lillian, who were five, and three-year-old Felix. Out of that family, only Selma, the wife, Lillian, one of the twins, and Felix, the youngest, survived. Frank Goldsmith was traveling to America with his small family, his wife Emily and his son Frankie. Now, his father-in-law had been urging him to come to America, believing they could make a better life there. Now, after Frank's youngest son died of diphtheria at the end of 1911, Frank agreed. So he was initially wary of putting his family through such a voyage. However, the marketing for the Titanic had done its job, and he booked passage. When his father-in-law's neighbor found out that Frank and his family were coming to America, he sent money for his little brother, Alfred Rush, to travel along with them. 
So Alfred was 15 at the time. He turned 16 on April 15th, the night that the Titanic sank. And he chose to stay aboard the Titanic with Mr. Goldsmith and went down with the ship. The Siege family. John and Annie Siege, who we did mention in episode one, were on their way to Florida with all nine of their children. All 11 of the Siege family perished the night the Titanic went down. Then there's Frederick Goodwin and his wife. They were traveling with six of their kids. Uh, They were originally booked on a different ship, but had to be transferred to the Titanic due to the coal strike. Um, As a result, all eight of the Goodwins went down into the ocean, just like the sieges. Bertram Dean was a 25-year-old Londoner moving to Wichita, Kansas with his wife, his son Bertram, and his two-month-old daughter, Melvina. Now, they were originally supposed to be on another ship, but like many others, were transferred to the Titanic due to the coal strike. While Bertram did not survive the sinking of the Titanic, his wife, his son Bertram, and his daughter Melvina did. As you can see, some families were traveling together, making their way to America. In other cases, there were wives who were bringing their children over to America to join their husbands who had gone on ahead to build a life for them. Um, In other cases, there were divorced women who were trying to find a better life for themselves, um, so on and so forth. So... Alma Paulson was one of those wives going to America to join her husband. He had gone on ahead to Chicago uh, to start a life and then later sent money so that they could join him. She boarded the Titanic with two of her children, ages six and two. Uh, Those were their sons and two daughters who were eight and three. Alma and all of her children perished the night the Titanic sank. Margaret Ford was one of those women whose husband had left her. She was traveling to America with four of her children to meet up with her eldest daughter, who was already working in Long Island. There were a total of 10 people traveling with Margaret, and all of them died the night the Titanic sank. Another passenger by the name of Rhoda Abbott was returning to Rhode Island with her two sons, Rossmore, who was born in 1896, and Eugene in 1899. She had just spent six months living in St. Albans with her mother after separating from her husband in 1911. And for the last of our third-class passengers for the moment, just as there was a large group of the Cornish traveling in second class, there was also a large group of Adderghoul villagers from Ireland traveling in third class, 14 of them to be exact. And of those 14, only two survived, Annie Kelly and Annie McGowan. So we are going to meet back up with some of those passengers in part three and four of our Titanic miniseries. Uh, But right now, we're actually going to take a couple of minutes to talk about some of the most famous passengers on the ship. And yes, uh, most of them are in first class. So up first, we have Benjamin Guggenheim. He was a 46-year-old millionaire who was traveling on the Titanic with his French mistress, Ninette. She was almost half his age and a cabaret singer. Now, he was on the Titanic because he needed to be back in New York for his daughter's ninth birthday. In addition, he was friends with the Strausses, Isidore and Ida Strauss, but they were also related through marriage. So Isidore Strauss's nephew, Roger, married Ben Guggenheim's niece, Gladys. Next, we have Colonel John Jacob Astor IV who, in 1912, was considered to be one of the wealthiest men in the world. Now, he divorced his first wife, Ava Lowell Willing, after his mother passed away. And with Ava, he had a son, William 
Vincent Astor and a daughter, Alice, who may or may not have actually been his. He was returning to New York after spending 10 weeks in Europe and Egypt with his pregnant new wife, Madeline Astor, and his Airedale Terrier, Kitty, who he loved very much. By the way, John Jacob Astor's mother was Caroline Astor, otherwise known as the Mrs. Astor. Now, she was the gatekeeper into rich New York society. And if you want to learn more about her or the Gilded Age, then we highly recommend you check out the History Chicks podcast and the episodes they did on Mrs. Astor and the Gilded Age heiresses. Leaving the Astors behind, next we have Frank Millet, who was a famous artist and writer. He had just finished a teaching gang at the New American Academy of Art in Rome, where he had also spent some extra time with his wife, Lily. Now, they were both on their way back to America. However, they left on separate ships. She left before him on her way back to their home in New York, whereas he was heading back to America to attend meetings in Washington. So, fun fact, he knew Mark Twain and even attended his wedding. Next, we're going to talk about Sir Cosmo and Lady Duff Gordon. So, Sir Cosmo was a rich landowner from Scotland, and he'd actually won a silver medal at the 1906 Summer Olympics for fencing. His wife, Lucille, made fashion at the time. So, she designed expensive, beautiful gowns for the rich women of Europe and America. Some of her gowns were even worn by members of the British royal family. And some of the women on the ship, might have even had at least one gown made by Lucy. Now, Sir Cosmo and Lady Duff Gordon were on their way back to New York to sign a new lease for a bigger shop. On to Isidore and Ida Strauss, a married couple from New York. So at one point, Isidore had actually been a congressman for New York, but he was also co-owner of Macy's department store. May or may not have shopped in it, driven past it, walked by it, you know, it's there. They were on their way back to New York after vacationing on the French Riviera. Now I'm going to talk about my two favorites, Henry B. and Renee Harris. Okay, so they are the cutest couple on the Titanic, in my personal opinion. They got married on October 22, 1899, when Henry was 32 and Renee, whose name is actually Irene, she was known as Renee to her loved ones, was 23. So she worked in a legal office at the time when he began wooing her with dinners and carriage rides in Central Park and really trying to win her heart. And once they got married, she kind of became like a partner in his business. So she would help him out in the office, attended rehearsals, and oh yeah, Henry was a Broadway producer. They were on their way back from a four-month working holiday where Henry was trying to find new shows to bring back to Broadway with him. He couldn't find any, so they were heading back to New York. One of the most famous passengers on the Titanic was Margaret Tobin Brown, who was traveling on her own because she was separated from her millionaire husband, James J. Brown. So friends to the Astor, she had actually joined them on their trip in Egypt. However, while she was in Paris, her son had gotten contact with her to let her know that her first grandchild, Lawrence Brown Jr., who was only four months old at the time, was very sick, and then immediately purchased a ticket for the Titanic. And like Margaret Brown, Helen Churchill Candy was returning to America after learning that her son, Harold, who was 25 years old, had been hurt in a plane crash. So, Margaret Brown is often referred to as Molly Brown, or the unsinkable Molly Brown, but no one referred to her as Molly until after she died. 
All right, so Major Archibald Butte. He served the administration of President William Taft and President Theodore Roosevelt as well. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, otherwise known as Teddy, was the president before William Taft. So Archie, as he was known to all those who knew him, was their military advisor. So he was in Rome on vacation because he'd become very stressed um, and very sick as a result of the time and effort that went into the campaign for Taft's re-election to his presidency. So he went to Rome, spent some time with his good friend, Frank Millet, and was returning to Washington, D.C. to take up his post once more. Another passenger in first class was Carl Baer, a 26-year-old tennis player who was ranked third in the United States. Another tennis player on the ship was Norris Williams. He was a 21-year-old star who was actually born in Switzerland since his father had moved the family from Philadelphia to Geneva in the late 1880s. He was on his way to America with his father, in fact, because he was going to play on the American tennis circuit before starting his classes at Harvard in the fall. Now, fun fact, and I think this is probably one of the best fun facts in this episode, and it makes my history nerdy side tingle with awesomeness. So, Norris's father, Charles Williams, was actually the great-great-grandson of the one, the only, Benjamin Franklin. So, talent, check. Smarts, check. Historical relative, check. Also on board were the Ryersons. So they were a wealthy family from Pennsylvania, part of the Philadelphia Mainline Society. So unlike some, they were returning to America for a sad reason. Their oldest son, Arthur Jr., who was 20, 21 years old, we're not really sure the accounts differ, as well as a Yale student, had died in a car accident. So the funeral was scheduled for April 19th, which was two days after the Titanic was scheduled to arrive in New York. Traveling with Arthur Sr. was his wife, Emily, their 21-year-old daughter, Suzette, their 18-year-old daughter, Emily, and their son, Jack, who was 13 years old at the time. So here's a nifty little fact. There was a steward on board by the name of William Ryerson. So he was actually the fourth cousin of Arthur Sr., and neither of them knew of their familial connection. Another family from the Philadelphia Mainline Society were the Thayers. So John B. Thayer was actually on vacation in Europe with his wife, Marion, and their 17-year-old son, Jack. Jack was also returning home from England, where he'd been attending boarding school. Now, John B. Thayer was the vice president of the Philadelphia Railroad, and they were also friends of the Ryersons. So we have the Ryersons and the Thayers from Pennsylvania. Now we also have the Wideners. So George D. Widener was traveling with his wife Eleanor from France, where they were trying to find a new chef for their hotel. You may or may not have heard of it, the Ritz-Carlton. Now it's not the Ritz-Carlton we know today. And an earlier iteration, it was pretty much when it was still new to North America and they were first expanding. George Weiner owned multiple businesses, one of which we already mentioned was the Ritz-Carlton. Another one was the streetcar business, which he inherited from his father. So George and Eleanor were also traveling with their son, Harry, who, a nice little Harvard boy, liked to collect books, rare books specifically. And in his collection already, he had a Gutenberg Bible as well as 
some of Shakespeare's earlier pages. Also on board was Walter D. Douglas, who was set to inherit the Quaker Oats fortune, which was worth millions of dollars. He was on board with his wife, Mahala Dutton Douglas, and they were on their way back to America from a five-month-long vacation in Europe. And on to Edgar and Layla Mayer, a couple from New York who were traveling back from Paris after receiving word that Layla's father, Andrew Sachs, yes, that's Sachs, Sachs Fifth Avenue, had passed away on April 8th. Next, we're going to meet Archibald Gracie IV, who was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1859. He was fascinated by his father's service in the Civil War, his father being Archibald Gracie III, and he actually died in the war when Archibald was only five years old. Now, his fascination led him to publish a book by the name of The Truth About Chickamauga, which was the battle his father served in. Now, fun fact, the mayor of New York lives in a home known as Gracie Mansion, and that home was built by Archibald Gracie I, Archibald's great-grandfather, in 1799. Next, we have the Spedens. Frederick Spedden and his wife, Margareta, who preferred to be known as Daisy, were traveling back to New York after spending some time in Algiers, Monte Carlo, Cannes, and Paris. They were traveling with their young son, Douglas, who was an only child and was the apple of their eye, as well as Daisy's maid and Douglas's nursemaid, Elizabeth Margaret Burns, who he very adorably called Muddy Boons. William Stead was also on board, also known as W.T. Stead. He was a very famous writer and journalist at the time. He was 62 years old and on the Titanic heading to New York to speak at the Men and Religion Forward Movement Congress at Carnegie Hall, which was to take place on April 21st. We also had a celebrity on board, yay. So Dorothy Gibson, she was 28 years old at the time the Titanic sank. She was a silent film star, a singer, and a model. So the last female passenger that we're going to meet in this episode is Edith Rosenbaum Russell. She was an American fashion writer living in Paris and heading to New York for the first time as a fashion buyer and stylist. So she had brought many expensive gowns onto the Titanic for this journey. Now, she had been in a car accident in 1911, the summer of 1911. This car accident actually killed her German fiancé, so she was still recovering from the emotional and mental scars that left. As a result, by the time she got to Cherbourg, she was feeling a little unsure of the trip, but eventually got over it and boarded the Titanic. And the last passenger we're going to discuss this episode is Francis Brown otherwise known as Reverend Brown, who we mentioned a little bit earlier. So his uncle, who was the Bishop of Cloyne, had purchased a ticket for him to board the Titanic as a gift. And Francis disembarked in Queenstown, which was his intended destination. Now, of the thousands of photos that he took while on the Titanic, he took the last surviving photo of the first-class dining saloon, as well as the last surviving photos of many of the passengers and crew. All right, so we're going to switch gears and talk about all the fun things that the first, second, and third class passengers could do while on the Titanic. In first class, they could enjoy going to the Turkish baths or taking a swim in the swimming pool, which was actually one of the first pools installed on a ship at that time. Or they could play a game of squash or visit, you know, 
the gymnasium and exercise on one of the many machines that they had installed. They could also enjoy the typical things they did on land, such as parties and dancing. Um, they could also sit on the deck chairs, take in the fresh air, take in some sun. Or they could play a game of cards or billiards. And when they're not doing that, they could also place bets on how many miles the Titanic could sail in a day. They really enjoyed that one. There was also the first class library where they could take out books. So, what was really neat was that the Titanic had a fully equipped dark room so that the passengers could take photos and develop them on board. Now, on to second class passengers. So, the second class passengers could sing songs or play the piano. Um, they could also play games like chess as well as cards. Like first class, they could also sit in the deck chairs and take in the fresh air and the sun. There was also a second class library where they could take out books as well, or they could read the newspaper that was printed on board daily, the Atlantic Daily Bulletin, and there was also a smoking room for the gentlemen. And as was the time, children were expected to entertain themselves unless they were on board with their nannies. Unlike first and second class, the third class passengers had less provided to them by the Titanic. So they would hang out in the general room, otherwise known as the third class lounge, where they would meet up with friends and play cards. The gentlemen could also go and smoke in the smoking room, and they could also take a walk on the third class deck. So, as you can see, third class passengers were left very much to their own devices. Now, moving on from the fun and games that could be had, we're going to talk about food. That's right, food, glorious food. So, food, 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 food. Everybody loves food. Except for the people being seasick. Right. So, as is often the case, the first class passengers had more allotted to them than anyone else in terms of options. If any of the first class passengers got the munchies, they could head on down to the veranda cafe for some coffee and tiny little sandwiches. The Titanic did observe traditional British afternoon tea, which was not something that the Americans were used to. However, they had it. That was held in the palm room as well as the Cafe Parisien. And speaking of the Cafe Parisien, that was exclusive solely to the Titanic. The Olympic did not have that room. And afternoon tea was served at four o'clock. Also, the first class passengers could have morning tea brought to their rooms. However, if they wanted to eat breakfast, they would need to go down to the dining room. When it was time for lunch, the ship's bugler, P.W. Fletcher, would play the roast beef of Old England. This tune would let them know that it was time to go eat. Now, for dinner, the procedure was a little bit different. So first, a gong would go off, letting passengers know that they need to go get dressed. A half hour after that, the bugle would sound again with the roast beef of Old England playing, letting them know to go to the dining saloon or to one of the restaurants for dinner. Where Chef Charles Proctor, the man in charge, would make sure that the first class passengers were eating only the best. So they ate seven courses, which included oysters, soup, Chicken, beef, dessert, as well as a few others. Now, when it came to eating, there were strict dress codes in place that both men and women followed, especially the women. Women could change their dresses up to five times a day. So, what one wore to breakfast was not worn to afternoon tea. And heaven forbid you wear that dress to dinner. It simply was not done. Okay, so women were still wearing corsets at the time. However, some of the more adventurous younger ladies had started wearing brassieres 
and chemises under their dress instead of the corset. Corsets were still in fashion, however, until after World War I. Once World War I was over, so was the day of the corset. They were set aside and were worn no longer. Now, because you have to be tied into your corset like you're being tied to the mast of the ship, the ladies' maids of the first-class passengers helped them in and out of those corsets. Women were wearing the most beautiful, dazzling dresses to dinner. It was all about showing off those extravagant gowns that they could buy in cities like New York and Paris. Some of those dresses were made by Lady Duff Gordon, who, of course, was a passenger on the Titanic. As for the dining experience in the second class, they were served four courses as opposed to the seven-course meal in first class, and it included soup, fish, chicken, and dessert. Now, there was one kitchen that prepared food for both the first and second class passengers, and while they were enjoying their food, they could listen to music played by the eight-man orchestra that was traveling in second class. Now, dining in third class was a much simpler affair. The food was made by a cook as opposed to a famous chef. Third-class passengers also had to eat in batches because the dining room could only seat up to 470 at a time. Another difference between the third-class and first-class dining experiences was that the third-class meal was served in the middle of the day as opposed to first-class, which was served in the evening. Since dinner was served so early in the day for the third-class passengers, they were served tea later on, which consisted of a small entree, some bread, dessert, and as much tea as they could drink. And as for the dining saloon, just like the cabins, the passengers were separated based on, mm, I don't want to particularly say gender, but that is kind of what it was. Uh, Well, it was more like marital status, to be quite honest. So single men would sit in one half of the dining room, whereas the other half would host the single women and the families. You know, it might sound like there's a huge discrepancy between third class and even second class passengers when it comes to food. However, on previous ships, third class passengers pretty much had to bring their own picnic. They needed to like bring their own food that they were going to eat for the entire journey. They were provided with communal stoves where the women, the mothers, whoever would cook to feed their families or themselves. Whereas now on the Titanic, you know, People are cooking for them. They're cleaning up after them. And it was a luxury to have, you know, breakfast, supper, dinner, tea. That's all provided for them and they didn't have to lift a finger. All right. So there are fun and games. There is food to be had. There are games to be played. The Titanic is steaming across the Atlantic, making its way to New York, traveling at 20 plus knots. First-class passengers are placing bets. When will the Titanic come in? How fast will it go each day? How many miles will it cover? Fast forward to Sunday, April 14th. It is 11.40 at night. It's dark. The sea is, as Second Officer Light Toller said, a flat calm. There are no waves. There's nothing breaking upon the icebergs. They are in dangerous territory. The Titanic is making its way through an ice field. All of a sudden, out of the darkness, looms a shape. Lookout Frederick Fleet takes a closer look. All of a sudden, he reaches for the phone. He dials down to the bridge, and he says three words. Iceberg, right ahead. 
Thanks so much, guys, for hanging out with us on this episode of Dear World Love History. If you enjoy the episode, leave us a review on iTunes and let us know. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and on Instagram at Outlandish Historians, where you can get updates about the podcast and fun facts we don't include on the podcast episodes or our show notes. Make sure you tune in for part three of our Titanic miniseries, which will be out on Monday, January 7th, 2019. Historians out.